0: What would feel easiest for you as a place to start? Should we talk about your Commodore computer or you want to talk about black holes?
1: Childhood, sure.
0: From Quanta Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Priya Natarajan. is that an easy comfortable yeah i place? mean that
1: that would be a, a smooth start okay
0: priya is a theoretical physicist who loves to use math to think about black holes her picture of the universe is one where black holes are not exotic oddities they're everywhere they're like orchestra conductors conducting the whole universe usually when i get together with her we don't just talk about our work though we talk about our relationships and our stories our lives it's easy for me to feel really close to her. Before this interview, we were talking on the phone, and she told me about an early model of a computer that she used when she was a teenager, a Commodore 64. I, I see my, my friend Bert here, my engineer, got excited when I mentioned the Commodore 64. So maybe some listeners won't know what we're referring to. What is, what's the story there?
1: So the Commodore 64 was the sort of the first desktop computer, personal computer that was marketed and it's uh, it dates all of us nine, late 80s, mid to late 80s. And I think sort of my generation of young people, so I was a young teenager then and I got started programming, learning how to program. And so it was sort of the first introduction to the digital age that really permeated uh, society in a much broader way than could have been imagined. It's very hard now when we all have laptops and we have phones and everything, personal uh, items that we carry around, uh, to imagine what a breakthrough it was. What It was exhilarating uh-huh. to have like a machine with that kind of capacity. Yeah you know, sort of a science nerd, uh, interested in electronics and robotics and stuff at the time. So to me, it was such an incredible gift. It was a present from my dad. So I grew up in India and my parents are professors and they often went abroad for conferences and so on. And my father would always bring back sort of, you know, exciting toys, books, things. And he brought back a Commodore 64 for me as a birthday present.
0: Wow. Is it the sort of computer, not something that you would assemble? It wasn't that kind of... It was, no, it, it wasn't it's already out of I the did box. that later yeah. at MIT. Did but, you? Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, uh-huh.
1: it had a graphics terminal, so you could actually see stuff. You could yeah. plot. And that, for me, was what was so thrilling. The fact that not just that you could code, because I kind of learned to code but that you could plot things and you could visualize them. And I was a very visual person. I was always obsessed with maps and looking through atlases. And so the fact that you could visualize something like immediately after computing something was just astounding. Uh-huh. to me as a child <laughs> I mean I think I, I felt that it was such a marvel and I always wanted to do something more than just kind of play with it do something useful like a scientific calculation
0: yeah did you so you say late 80s but just to help me remember the, the yeah. Macintosh was around in the mid 80s I think yeah and and now I think this was
1: around roughly the same time okay but, but Mac, it had yeah. to,
0: a little bit of a different relationship to the person using it isn't that true that's correct so so in the sense that you could you could program it you could make it do things the mac was more like you know you had to get software and you well you didn't get the software it came with the mac but right uh, i'm trying to even remember did you did we actually purchase software somewhere and then have maybe you did you had a little floppy disk and you'd have to insert it it had a floppy
1: disk it came with an initializing floppy disk so to get stuff going yeah But that was it. And you could store stuff on a floppy. So because I remember the first big code that I wrote, uh, which was, you know, making a star map for over Delhi. That was like the major accomplishment for me at the time. And that I remember saving it on a floppy disk. Well, this is amazing.
0: Hold on. So I have never tried to make a star map. I'm not even sure I know what a star map is. I I was not the kind of kid that looked at the, well, is it, it... was it something that, like, would be posted in the newspaper where the different stars That's are right. in the sky at a different—on a given day where you should look at what time?
1: Yeah. So I think in Delhi, at least, we had a custom at that time that they would publish a monthly star chart. Yeah. A sky chart of the sky above Delhi, and you know they would mark out the constellations that you could see, in any planets, any naked eye planets or planets that you could see with a small telescope, though, those would be marked out. And they'd publish this like once a month or so. And I, you know, I was an amateur astronomer at the time. I had a telescope, and I was part of the amateur astronomers' club at the Nehru Planetarium in Delhi. And so, as an avid sky watcher, so I used to follow those maps. And I showed up at the Nehru Planetarium. Um, this, they had a new director, this wonderful woman, Dr. Raghavan. And I sort of showed up and I said, look, I'd like to do something. I have a Commodore 64, <laughs> and I can compute. <laughs> and uh, so I, I somehow thought that I had entered, like, you know, like a new echelon of, uh, of science, that I could do something <laughs> useful.
0: Yes, well, yeah.
1: So, so I, yeah, I offered my services to her. <laughs> So then she asked me what I liked, and I said, well, you know, I love maps, and I like the idea of mapping. And, and she said, what do you like about maps? I said, what I love about maps is that, you know, at that point, my experience with maps was from atlases, right? From atlases of both space sure, yeah. and land. And I would say, I told her that I liked the fact that in maps, not only could you use maps to find places, but that maps also seem to reveal what is known and what is not known, because maps often have a piece of Mm. land, for example, you know, um, denoted as terra incognita, so something you don't know anything about. And to me, that sort of that mystery of knowing and not knowing and both of them being sort of in the same place and showing you the frontier.
0: That's awesome.
1: Showing you what the frontier is, like what remains to be known. I mean, that was such an exciting thing for me.
0: It's very, very exciting, especially where so much of the experience of school for someone at the age you were at that time is the teacher is always telling exactly. you what is known, and, and you don't get a true picture of what science or any kind of yep. learning is really about. But by the way, were there dragons drawn yes. on some of those old maps? Because that's what they here always talk dragons. about here be dragons yes. and that. Yes. You, you actually yes. saw maps I, of that type? I loved also
1: these mythical maps, maps of mythical places as well as real. I mean, I didn't really care mm. as much about whether something was real or not real. That was not my preoccupation at the time. My preoccupation was yeah. with what the map was really trying to tell us and what the story of that map was.
0: Wow. But so you you tell uh, the director, I'm interested in maps and, you know, because of the edge between the known and the unknown. And then she says, oh, I, I have an idea for something you could do.
1: That's right. Uh, and she said, oh, so what about star maps? I said, oh, yeah, I look at the star map at the day it's published, uh, the monthly star map. I look at it uh, for the one over Delhi and, you know, I look at, you know, I look to see which constellations I can see and so on. And she said, hey, have you thought about making your own one of those maps? Uh, And I said, no. Ah, is that doable? And she said, well, I can get you started. Uh, It's a hard problem, but you have a Commodore 64, right? And I said, yes. And um, so then she taught. She asked me if I knew um, spherical geometry. Did I know trigonometry? And I said, Yeah, I know a little bit, and <laughs> I can pick up what I need to know. So let me interrupt. So she... I'm
0: sorry. I guess I going to oh. ask you about that because I've heard, as a mathematician, I've heard about spherical geometry. It's a word, a phrase you see. I don't hmm. know that I've ever had it in any course. Um, I mean, I know what spherical coordinates are. I know how to locate a point right. on the hmm. surface of a sphere. But, but spherical geometry where i mean that's a pretty old-fashioned subject right i mean that's they don't yeah, teach it in school or college anymore
1: right but that's where my russian center of physics and mathematics ah. for everyone series came in handy. oh
0: yeah? i
1: had read all about projections various kinds of projections and how you could project from you know the spherical sky onto a flat map like how that was done ah. and um So, yes, I had learned some of these very old-fashioned sort of bits and pieces from uh, that series. Go back, and I spend like six and a half weeks of my summer holidays cracking this problem. I crack it. And, of course, then I produce a map for New Delhi, and then I show up at her door with the printout, right? and showing the map and she looked at it and and you know she told me later she did not believe that i had done it myself first of all so i showed her all my notebooks and all my calculations and how i did it and i even had a printout of my program so that she could t- check it and wow. she still said that she was oh, yeah. sure. she she said that she, she was utterly impressed but she thought this is too good right couldn't have done it herself so then she st- starts of course she quizzes me and you know and I explain how I did it so it's she said you know, later when she's recounting her sort of encounters with me <laughs> when I was much older she said and then I thought hmm maybe this kid did do it right and then she asked me a question and she said that question settled it for her And I don't remember it, but I mean, I remember answering all her questions, but I don't remember a pivotal one. Her pivotal question, and it turns out, it is so crazy prescient, right? She says, okay, this is all great, Priya, but what if you move to Boston or Brisbane? So what Mm -hmm. are you going to do about the night sky then? Who are you going to rely on for your star map? And I said, aha, the way I've written the program... I you can put the latitude oh and longitude of, of any place on Earth, <laughs> and I can fire up the star map for you. <laughs> yeah, and then she was like, she said at that moment, she realized, okay, this is it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this kid close. And I, she said that you know later on she said that at that point she said, okay, uh, I really want to spend time with this kid, <laughs> so. And then you know she would give me little projects. So she was working on sunspots. So she was doing taking data. So I would plot things for her, help her analyze some data, historical data. And essentially, I think what had happened is that she said. I you mean, know, she introduced me to research and I got completely seduced
0: yep, by this idea. That's, that's what this was. This was right. research. Yep. And it, it was, was a-
1: figuring things out. And, you know, it didn't matter that somebody else was making a star map, that people knew how to do it. It didn't have to be the first ever whatever, right? Just the thrill of doing it myself, that joy. And, you know, I still, yeah, and I still have that. I still have that. And that's what I'm so grateful for you know, so many years into the game of doing science, professionalizing, career, all of that, I still have that childlike thrill that you get when you <laughs> figure something out and it works out. And um, yeah, and I think that that has probably been one of the most important lessons um, in my life, wow. that keeping that thrill alive.
0: It's so I I love your emphasis on the point that the discovery doesn't have to be a discovery for the world. It That's was right. a discovery for you. It was new to you, and that yeah. was the fun. I mean, it wasn't a competitive thing like, oh, I solved something no one else has solved.
1: No, yeah, not at all. It's never been that about that for me. It's always been uh, pushing my own cognitive limits. Like, you know, I couldn't figure this out like two hours ago, two days ago, and now I have figured it out. And then I have this thing, this thirst to
0: master I, I'm just a very basic question. I, is the what is the night sky like in Delhi? Is it? I would have thought that there would be a lot of artificial light, but is that not true? Is very dark.
1: It was much clearer when I was growing up in the '80s than it is now. Now it's utterly polluted. I mean, there's really no way you can really see the night oh. sky, or see the splendor of it. You might get a hint now and then of some constellation, but you know, it's really not that great. But when I was growing up, you just had to drive out. The city hadn't expanded as much as it's now, it has expanded now. So you could just drive out like, you know, 10 miles, 15 miles, and you would really, the, you could go away from the city lights. And it was marvelous. It was just really marvelous.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's pick up about the, the broader theme of maps, because you said it mm-hmm. was prescient for um, the director, Raghavan, to have, you know, given you a mapping question. Mm-hmm. It's become, a, I don't know, is it like the the main central theme, would you say, of your career since then?
1: Well, or I think or that one it, of them? For, yeah, well, it's it sort of, it, you know, it's the backdrop.
0: Okay, backdrop. It's the
1: backdrop of everything that I do, and it's a backdrop of my worldview. And mm-hmm. it's very fundamental to how I see my work and also how I see the world. Um... In terms of comprehending the world, understanding, making sense of the world, and um, navigating the world, uh, both in science and life, um, so you know she was prescient because uh, somehow she had was able to recognize that. You know, it also means that there's a sort of a sense of exploration, right? Maps carry that connotation, and I definitely you know see myself as an explorer of Mm -hmm. some sort. Mm -hmm. And my younger brothers will immediately point out that, you know, I'm like this armchair, much as I wanted to be like, you know, an explorer in the 16th century on a ship, you know, finding terra incognita. My brothers who know me well said, well, I think you would not really relish a spot of scurvy or whatever, (laughs) you know, you're so genteel that that you would want, yeah, you would want the, you know, the glamorous, comfortable version of the Age of exploration voyages, right? Yeah. Which was not available then.
0: So. so the term you were using was armchair explorer.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, because yeah. <laughs> I see in some other interview with you that I read um, that you mentioned that you one thing you strive for in a lot of your work is a kind of depth of understanding that that comes from an abstract point of view, like a, a mathematical yeah. point of view, getting to the essence of things. Um, that's that works well for armchair. Explorers. Absolutely. Of a certain type, yeah.
1: And, you know, and to give you an example of the, you know, when I talk about like mapping, right? The, sort of, and you know, and you must have this, right? The, the, the sort of very peculiar ways in which one learns things. So I learned the piano and I was a very reluctant learner. I, I, you know, when I was very young, you know, I started learning and didn't really like it and, you know, what I felt. I sh- I'd really regret that now. But in order to get through my lessons and to learn them, you know, I mapped all the keys into numbers. Oh. And so every piece was, you know, the ode to joy was three, three, four, two, two, one, whatever. You know, I had that down. And I was, because I have a pretty good memory, and that's sort of how I learned. And, you know, I never realized that this also has to do with. A sort of a facility for a certain kind of mapping instinctually wanting to map things map what you don't know and what you're learning to something you already know and Hmm. to see if you can then push it right
0: so remarkable so does that work as far as like when you play piano do you sound like a player piano I'm
1: I'm just I'm just not a good enough player I'm so (laughs) mediocre I would love to be better but um you know I'm I am hoping to now sincerely learn musical notation. The problem with mm. this mathematical transposition yeah. is that I use that to circumvent learning musical notation. Well, that's what right? I was
0: wondering, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It may be almost a crutch for you. That's right. The real explorer is someone who's going to get out there and get dirty and get not just get their knees scratched, but, you know, maybe have life-threatening situations. And and yet um, that's not the kind of explorer that she is. And, and even within astrophysics, you can be that kind of explorer. You can go to the top of mountains where they have observatories, you know, because the air is thin and you can get better astronomical data since the, the signals from the stars don't get distorted as they're coming through the atmosphere if it's thin up there. So, but she doesn't even seem to be that kind of Um, astronomer. She's really, you know, close in some ways to a mathematician. She's sitting in a chair in the calm of her office or um, in front of her computer terminal or just thinking. She's in a rare books library looking at an old map and then an idea comes to her. So she really is an armchair explorer, but it's not to say that she's not courageous. I mean, a thing that came out of my talk with her is that she seems to be a bit of a wild woman, Priya Natarajan, armchair explorer, mapper of the universe. After the break, she moves us through terra incognita. Also, black holes anthropomorphize as a very impolite creature. That's ahead.
2: If you like the Joy of X podcast and getting to know brilliant scientists and mathematicians, you might also like Quanta Magazine's science podcast. In every episode... Quanta's award-winning reporters illuminate the stories behind new discoveries in mathematics, physics, computer science, and the life sciences. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcasting app or at quantamagazine.org. The Quanta Magazine Science Podcast, illuminating science for your ears.
0: This theme of maps and, you know, the the edge between the known and the unknown is yeah. is really brought together nicely, I think, in your work on mapping the universe and, yeah. and mapping dark matter and black holes as being objects at the edge yeah. between what we know about physics and where physics breaks down. So So maybe it's time for us to try to get into you as the scientist you are now and that you've been yeah. for the, you know, like, say, since grad school. Um, when we talked yesterday, you were super pumped up about talking about what you were calling outflow from That's black right. holes. Which is that the same thing as I've read elsewhere, burping?
1: Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So tell me many, about Yeah. yeah. So I, I think this was, um, you know, so I was in graduate school from 1995 onwards at Cambridge, Cambridge, England. And I was working uh, with Martin Rees and on trying to understand how to integrate the growth, formation, and evolution of black holes into the larger picture of the assembly of galaxies and structure in the universe. And around that time is really when we started observationally to get a hint that perhaps, you know, maybe every galaxy in the universe harbors a black hole in the center, and that the mass of this black hole has some sort of relationship as in a correlation with the mass of the stars in the innermost regions of a galaxy. So it was just starting to emerge that perhaps there was some connection between the assembly of galaxies, the formation of galaxies and structure in the universe, for which we had a very good theory. And, you know, black holes were sort of needed to now be incorporated into that scheme. So for my thesis work, I did the sort of the first real sort of synthetic modeling of putting these pieces together, the dark matter halos that are seeding and. Um, form the scaffolding for all structure formation. So, you know, galaxies form in the centers of dark matter halos when gas falls in and then, you know, cools and forms stars. That's how you assemble a galaxy. So I, my work uh, at the time was to develop a new framework and methodology that would somehow integrate the formation of the black hole into the scheme. And, you know, when I was doing that, um, I realized that in order to successfully do that, you somehow had to couple some of the very small scales on which were relevant to black holes, you know, like the event horizon, right, the Schwarzschild radius, um, to the region, which is very tiny compared to any galactic scale on which we see stars or stellar phenomena. And, and the black hole is so compact that it's sitting right at the center of a galaxy.
0: It's going to be important to understand what Priya is talking about when she says event horizon. It's uh, If you think of a black hole like a beach ball, the event horizon would be like the rubber, the surface of the beach ball. It's the boundary that defines the region of space where uh, anything inside that black hole cannot get out, not even light. You also heard Priya mention the Schwarzschild radius. That's essentially the radius of this beach ball. That's what defines the event horizon.
1: But if the growth of the black hole somehow had to be connected to that of stars, as the correlation was suggesting. We didn't know if there was causation. Or it was just you know, statistical fluke correlation, right? But if there was going to be causation, then there had to be a way in which the black hole could impact very large distances from the center of the galaxy. And up to then, all we had all been preoccupied with was how to feed black holes, how to grow them, mm-hmm. how do you get the gas into the center. And we hadn't thought very much about what else black holes could do. So, you know, we were sort of, you know, we we had realized at the point that black holes could either be feasting, they could be sitting in very gas-rich galaxies, in the centers of gas-rich galaxies, and feeding in a lot of matter very rapidly. And we knew that kind of was what the quasar phenomenon was, that the matter that's falling in, that's being sort of heated up and glowing as it's being swallowed up, lights up, and you see a quasar.
0: A quasar is one of the brightest objects in the universe. It's thought to be caused by gas swirling into a super, super supermassive black hole. When the gas falls in there, energy explodes out, and it is extremely bright. You can see it all the way across the universe.
1: What we didn't know is how much of the matter that is actually right around the black hole, finally makes it in. People suspected that they would actually dribble, like black holes couldn't feed fully, that there would be some material that would probably be ejected. <laughs> hold, hold
0: on. I, you're, you're giving me a whole—there's so much good stuff coming at me here. When I hear feasting and dribbling, i got to pick you up on that. Those are so vivid. The black hole—did you say that? Yeah, feasting? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Feasting. The black hole is feasting, so I'm picturing this gluttonous thing. Yes gorging itself right. on gas on gas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then it's getting so um, so worked up occasionally it kind of dribbles it out like a little baby that you're feeding the, the That's baby right. food too fast. And it goes bleh, bleh, bleh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's not as random in the sense that you know what's really happening, it, it's a very ordered physical process, right? So this gas is being heated up, so radiation is being released. This radiation has some pressure so, the dribble is not just going poof on the corner of your mouth, but it's actually getting pushed out <laughs> as an outflow. Yeah.
0: So, but so the first thought is what, what happened to the idea that nothing can escape from a black hole? Oh no, but hole. this is stuff. No,
1: this is from way outside. This is well before the we're point of We're way outside yeah, the event horizon. Absolutely. It's like so just... 10,000 times the event horizon. OK. Yeah. Or 100,000 times. Outside the Schwarzschild radius, so you know this, you know the ga- the the gravity of the black hole has enormous pull, so it's actually affecting yeah. the flows of gas from like way out. The only question mm-hmm. is how much of that gas would actually lose its spin or its angular momentum, right? Because it's swirling, you'd need to swirl and lose all your angular momentum to be captured by the black hole. What time
0: of are we thinking about? Is this like? Uh, um, oh, anytime a, a, in the a, universe. So a lot oh, of so galaxies
1: have hydrogen. A lot of hydrogen sitting in the center.
0: So there's just Dusted, hydrogen out there in interstellar space, or we're in the in a in gal- the galaxy. We're already in sitting galaxy. inside a galaxy. And so just, these are
1: galaxies that have assembled already.
0: Okay, with so there are stars. So if the universe we're saying now is 13.8 billion years old, or something. Right. You're saying this could be at any time. We're not just talking about the first right. billion Right. I mean, the, years some anything. of
1: the details are slightly different in the sense that, you know, when the first stars light up and the first black holes form, we think that is roughly around the same time that these two phenomena occur. Yeah, because, you know, one way of making the first black holes is from the dead, you know, sort of the dead stars. The first episode of star formation, the stars exhaust all their fuel and they leave little black holes behind. So we think that could be one way to start off black holes, right? Black hole seeds. So that could happen, we believe, when the universe was maybe like not even a billion years old, right? Uh-huh. And all the way to today, except in the very early universe, it was very gassy. There was a lot of gas because nothing had cooled and formed stars yet. And so you're progressively over time in the universe converting a lot of gas into stars, stars in galaxies. Mm-hmm. And so you're locking up a lot of
0: gas in stars. So, so in when you use times, gas, sorry, when you when you talk keep talking about gas, I should think of things that haven't condensed into bigger objects that we recognize as either gaseous planets or stars or that right. just so, like gas could... that's kind of just out there as lots of molecules.
1: That's right. So that's early on. And yeah. then a lot of it gets locked up in stars, but there's still a lot of gas amongst the stars sitting mm-hmm. in the center of a galaxy. hmm Because, you know, it's the reservoir. There's a reservoir of gas from which new stars keep forming and condensing out, right? Uh And there's a cosmic ambient distribution of gas that is trickling down to the centers of galaxies. It's a slow sort of trickle. So your gas is being replenished into galaxies over
0: time. Like I remember my childhood astronomy books as showing stars and planets and empty space in between them. Mm-hmm. And that's not the picture we're talking about now. I mean, yes, there's a lot of empty space, but you're telling me I need to be thinking about what I the kept calling empty sport. space has a lot of gas in there that's doing that's stuff. Right. That's the so a lot of gas
1: that we don't see, right, which is not yeah. shown in those images because it's either too hot or it's too cold. So it's not yeah, glowing yeah. in the right temperature to be seen by us visually.
0: Okay, nice. Right. So back to then feeding, feasting, and and right. burping. So yeah,
1: and burping, and all these sort of uh, gastronomical analogies, which kind of <laughs> work quite well. So they do. um, the so a feasting black hole that is feeding very actively a lot of gas uh, because you know as the gas is falling in, it gets uh, heated up and it radiates, and that's how that's how we see black holes. We see black holes indirectly. From the glowing gas that the dying gasps of this, you know, glowing gas that's making its way in. That's how we uh-huh. see black holes.
0: Because what that gas gets very heated to then starts very radiating. high
1: temperatures. Yeah, I see. And, and starts glowing in the X-rays typically.
0: Ah, uh, so they're firing out X-rays, which then ultimately make it to our X-ray detectors. That's right.
1: That's right. So, you know, the kinds of black holes I'm talking about, I should just clarify, are these super—the monsters. These are the outlier black holes that are the centers of galaxies. I mean, the universe is basically
0: littered I with black I think that's holes something people don't now. necessarily know. And that's a kind of a— oh, I know, right? I, I mean, know. I I used to hear that—again, not being an expert—that black holes were these kind of exotic phenomena. Now, from your work and your colleagues' work, it's like they're at the center of every galaxy. They're all over the place. They structure the universe. Pretty much, yeah.
1: That's right, and so at the center of the galaxies you have these supermassive black holes. Anything about above a million times the mass of the sun is basically uh-huh. called a supermassive black hole. And then we now have these even bigger monsters called really? ultra massive black holes, which are a billion times the a mass of the sun or wild. bigger. They exist. Yeah, a billion. Is that?
0: It's like, not un- really? Well, first of all, nobody understands billion. Awesome.
1: <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. It's like. That's right. But then you have all these little black holes, um, which are the end states of stars that are littered everywhere because you have, you know, wherever there are stars, you have these littered black holes. And that's what LIGO is detecting. You know, this detector that detected gravitational waves from colliding black holes they detected gravitational waves from these teeny tiny 30 times the mass <laughs> of the sun, 50 times the mass of the sun.
0: That's a really you fun know. point For me, they're For teeny you, they're tiny. Litter. I mean, they're still... They're the little specks, 30 times the mass of the sun. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah,
1: I, I know. My, my, I, I often joke. Yeah, I often joke with my friends when... you know, So I love to cook, and... But, you know, I don't... I mean, I... Recipes are for guidance. I kind of really sort of figure out my own proportions. But if you ask me how much an ounce is, like with my hand, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But if you ask me how much a, a billion solar mass black hole, you know, I have enormous mm-hmm. intuition about it. So it's really crazy, right? You know, you know how it is, right? When you really get familiar, there's a way in which you, your sense of scale gets recalibrated because of the numbers that you deal with, right? That it's um, much more graspable, those kinds of numbers, they're much more graspable um, than even sort of real things um, that you encounter every day. So in our galaxy, for example, LIGO is detecting all these little black holes that are colliding, right? These are all within our galaxy. So these are all little black holes that are sort of everywhere. And every galaxy has these...
0: Really? I didn't get that. Hold on. Let me make you pause there. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. So LIGO, which we all heard about, yeah. um, was it 2017 or something? Yeah, we got The first... Yeah. It was 2016. No, 17, okay, right. 17. The Nobel Prize was 2017, yeah. right? But they... Um... You're saying every time we keep hearing about this collision or that collision, it's usually like a billion light years away. That's right. Or something. And but that's the scale of our just our galaxy.
1: Yeah, it's all within our galaxy. So that's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. Well, it's all fairly nearby events. They are very nearby events. Uh, And um, you know and these supermassive black holes that are in the center of every galaxy, they also do collide because early on in the universe. You know, galaxies form by colliding with each other, as in a bigger galaxy forms from the collision of two little ones, right? And if both of them have little black holes in their centers, they're going to merge and form a bigger black hole. And that process will generate gravitational waves as well, except that those gravitational waves have much lower frequency, and they're not detectable from the Earth. So, you know, LIGO... So you're uh, telling
0: me colliding galaxies... And the
1: colliding black holes in them. And
0: the colliding black holes in Supermassive black holes, yeah. Yeah, that that in principle could give us other kinds of gravitational waves would be too low a note for us to hear in our detectors. That's right.
1: Uh, We are very sure that they do, not that they may. Uh We're very sure. We just haven't heard them yet because we haven't built the equipment yet. And what is really exciting about the collision of supermassive black holes is because of where they are sitting the center of galaxies, which are very gassy and very rich environments in terms of stars and, um, you know, packed with stars, dense, dense environments, you know, prior to these two black holes actually colliding en route, we would start to see very interesting, unique signatures that would emanate in electromagnetic mm. spectrum. And when they collide, because there's a lot of gas, right, you see a lot of imprints on the gas, so you'll see radiation. So, for example, you know, one of the challenges with LIGO, you might have noticed, right, is they find a gravitational wave event, and then people are scrambling to point their telescopes, all kinds of telescopes, to see where it happened, because there is no other accompanying Uh signal in the optical not you know very rarely it happens only when you have a neutron star in a black hole collision right so um, so to to use a, just to contrast, use a very
0: crude analogy for that It'd be sort of like if in real world you heard something that that caught your attention and you have to whip your head around to look what what made that noise but there wouldn't yeah. be anything to see and so here you'd That's right
1: they may, oh, there not may not be, be in the case if there yeah, is yeah for a pure black hole black hole little black hole little black hole collision there may not but be but here you're saying there all. would be something However, to see
0: because of the oh yeah there'd be fireworks, fireworks
1: beforehand okay. oh yeah there'd be fireworks beforehand and I think that's that's the kind of um, those are the kinds of calculations that people like me are doing I,
0: I want to go back to this interesting outflows
1: you want to go back to outflows well, I do right? because yeah. there's a very
0: yeah. cool story there that I want to understand right. better you mentioned that if you have a big black hole yep then the stars around it may tend to be big.
1: That's right, the mass of the stars around the innermost regions. So there was a correlation. So the bigger a black hole in a galaxy, the its mass was correlated with the stars in the center.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting. And pattern. so you found
1: bigger black holes in bigger galaxies. So by and large, uh-huh. so that was the f- hint of the correlation. So for example, if we take the size of the Earth, right? Yeah. So the if the black hole would be the size of a penny, the Schwarzschild radius would be the size of the of a penny at the center of the Earth. Okay. And the stars. Whose masses, the mass of this black hole, would be correlated with, yeah. would be the size of the Earth. So the question is that how does the how does the circumference, the outer part of the um, shell of the Earth, know about this little penny? Well, this little it seems p- unbelievable. That's right,
0: right? It seems crazy. How could the little penny at the center of the Earth? Have some influence to correlate its right. So size the analogy of things on the surface. Yeah,
1: the analogy would yeah. be tectonic plates and earthquakes, right? So that's how they communicate. Okay. That oh. The center of the earth communicates with the surface, via yes. these sort of you know surface motions, motions through these sort of tectonic plates and deeper structures, right? Uh-huh. So the idea was that you know black holes, therefore, all the gas that is you know heated up doesn't make its way to the center and maybe some of it gets pushed out. So what you have is an outflow of gas that reaches the equivalent of the penny pushing some gas out to the outskirts, huh out to the surface, just like earthquakes. Yeah. the same idea.
0: So the flowing gas in this in this analogy yeah. would in be, analogous be the to what? Gas. that'd be analogous yeah. to the waves in the earth right.
1: Right. So I had this crazy idea. I mean, people thought that they were, you know, they were smaller scale outflows that, you know, stars were, you know, when stars form, there's a lot of gas that's pushed around and there are winds from stars. So that was all kind of known at the time. But it was really not known if black holes, that energy that's coming out of the radiation uh, um, in gas around the black hole, if that could be tapped mechanically to push gas out into a wind or an outflow. That was not known at the time. There was no observational evidence. You know, it was theoretically you could calculate it, and that's what um, I did with a collaborator of mine who was a postdoc at the time at um, Cambridge. And so I realized that, you know, if a quasar could power this outflow, then um, a couple of interesting observational tests could test such a picture. And one of them would be that this stuff would push out and it would push out a lot of gas in between because it would be very powerful outflow outflow, traveling at a fraction of the speed of light, but it's still pretty fast. And it would sweep up a lot of the gas in between that it encountered, right? So it was kind of really pushed through and there would be a gas shell that literally you would have a gas shell that was being moved out. And then I calculated that, you know, what would the fate of that shell be? Could that that shell break? It would would be gas, right? Could that shell form stars? Could that start to glow? And could we see these patterns of stars or little galaxies forming outside big galaxies, like outside, you know, galaxies that harbored the quasar? So I was thinking about, you know, could we see the gas? Would the gas itself glow? Would that shell glow before it broke up and formed stars? And then I had this kind of real um, aha moment when I was just doing the calculation. And I realized that, in fact, this gas, if it hung around and if it could hang around without forming stars quickly, then it would glow itself because it would be cooling as it was getting pushed out, right? Mm. It would cool, 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 and it would get very cool and it would emit in the radio wavelengths. Mm. Hmm. Very, very long, low energy wavelengths, hmm. like sort of gigahertz sort of frequencies. Mm-hmm. And then I predicted, I did a calculation and I showed that if you had a supermassive black hole or you had a super duper massive black <laughs> hole in a billion times mass of the sun, if you just tapped even 1% or 5% of the radiation energy in the radiation to push mechanically to give you this wind or outflow then you would have enough matter, enough gas pushed in that shell that it could glow and it could be detectable.
0: Wow. Nice prediction. So, So this is really honest science now. This is big. You're really sticking your neck out.
1: Totally sticking my neck out. And you're a grad student, right? Totally. Yeah. Grad student. Hadn't finished.
0: So, you're a grad student. You're sticking your neck out. You're saying there's going to be a... If this is true, it has a real prediction. This, yeah, and that you should
1: see signals. it in the radio. Uh-huh. Of course, um, unluckily for me at the time, there was no such instrument available oh. operating at that frequency yeah. at that time, 1999. The frequency
0: you're talking you about, know, the prediction of gigahertz detectors? gigahertz yeah, detectors? yeah,
1: gigahertz, yeah.
0: Oh, uh-huh. And
1: with the kind of sensitivity. So it's a combination of sensitivity and operating in that frequency. Okay, yeah. Right. So you didn't have that. So, you know, that sweet spot wasn't covered yet. But, you know, fast forward 10 years, and there is talk of an instrument called ALMA, which is the large millimeter array in Chile, a radio array in Chile that was going to be the most sensitive radio telescopes that we ever made, spanning a real range of frequencies, including this frequency where you could potentially see it. So, you know, I worked on this. I made this prediction, and I did a couple more theoretical papers on, you know, if that gas actually fragmented and form stars and what would that look like and so on and so forth, right? But then I moved on. But, you know, I kind of kept my eye out sort of, you know, I'm not an observer, but I would sort of watch to see, okay, you know... Is something turning on? Is this going to become feasible? But then it turns out ALMA came on, and I noticed that. And I also noted that, you know, it would take a few years of ALMA running for it to get to the sensitivity to detect this. You know, this would happen not in the most nearby black holes, because it turns out that the nearest supermassive black holes to us are not feasting. (laughs) They're actually (laughs) fasting. (laughs) Because they've evacuated pretty much, you know, they're, they're fed, they've reached their limit. They're, you know, they've maxed yeah. out everything that's there, they're okay. done, right? So they're just sitting there. Yeah, like the, like the black hole in the center of the Milky Way, which is 4 million times the mass of the sun, is just sitting there, right? It's doing nothing, except occasionally it's going to catch anything that comes close, yeah. right? It's not feeding. Oh, it's feeding at a very, very negligible rate. I mean, it, you don't see it as a quasar or anything, right? It doesn't glow at mm. all. And um, we see some piddly radio radiation yeah. from it, but nothing more. But um, so these black holes, these supermassive black holes that would be driving outflows, would necessarily have to be ones that were feasting, and therefore they would be farther away from us, which means you need an instrument that's really sensitive enough to see more distant growing black holes. So ALMA reached the sensitivity about two years uh-huh. ago. This is and good. You're really building up the l-
0: drama here. I like this. <laughs> I
1: don't.
0: So it's, so it's
1: and then, what do you know? That's it. I was not involved. You know, I was not kind of putting proposals in because, you know, as I kind of alluded to, sort of in my own nature, right? I mean, the prediction was out there. It was published. It was peer-reviewed. Okay.
0: So you say two years ago, Alma is the sensitive, sensitive enough. enough, and then and
1: uh, less than a year ago, um, last December, I see a paper where they report the first detection of a quasar outflow and it's radio signature. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, it's that same kind of thrill that I told you, the childlike thrill <laughs> you have when you sort of figure something out. But this was even better <laughs> because, you know, this was a prediction and it was, you know, taking a risk, a creative risk. And uh, yeah, that was super exciting.
0: That is the ultimate. That's what. That's what we look for, for,
1: right? And I just found out that. (laughs) um, So I found out from this group that they've sort of detected another one. You know, obviously, you know, just finding one isn't enough.
0: When we get back, what a bathtub drain might teach us about the formation of quasars in the early universe.
2: If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quantum Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quantum Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe, and everything in it, works. Learn more at quantummagazine.org. Quantum Magazine. We illuminate science. Because you want to know more.
0: I love talking to Priya about the connections between art and science, and her emphasis on maps helps me connect the dots between what artists do and what scientists do.
1: I feel a very deep connection to art, in particular sort of modern abstract art, uh, because I think there is something at a very, very deep level that is very similar about what we all do, like how we think about the world and how artists see the world and what they capture about the world and their imagination and how they put it together and they create something, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we do something that's very analogous. We look at nature, we look at the world, we make measurements, but then we also have, you know, the beauty of mathematics, the power of mathematics to build a model and then we create something. There is a deep connection between the way in which artists map their inner world to the outer world and the way we scientists do it again it's coming back to mapping right well that's
0: yeah. what i'd like to understand it's because i think you have some some notion of maps that's more generalized or uh, you know, like most people, if they're hearing map, they're thinking a map, something you unroll on the table and it's got drawings. But mm-hmm. but certainly in science, we talk about mapping this problem onto that problem. That's right. You know, I mean, we, we use the word map. And then there's all these sayings about the map is not the territory. So you're probably right. thinking in terms of mental models versus reality. That's right. That's right. And so on. So can I you know, I'm, expand yeah, a little so, for us what you're talking about here with, with maps and what's so appealing for you? I, I haven't posed the question crisply. I'd just like to hear more of your thinking about maps. Right. So I think
1: that maps, I use them both like literally and metaphorically. And yeah. literally, of course, there are sort of, you know, things that you unfold and you what, I mean, you can locate, right? It's a way of spatial location and of ma- of. Um, of visualizing connections between things, right? That's sort of broadly what sort of you know sort of cartographic sort of maps are, but I think of maps as mental devices yeah. because they give you the capacity to represent ideas, abstract things, concepts, and through a sort of a multi-layered process, allows you to go from the level of abstraction and conceptualization to something very, very real. Yes. And and, and the, the reality, and as you said, in the kind of work that you do too, right? These sort of models, they start out being very abstract, and they are very sort of concentrated, right? They have the sort of, you first start out with a model that has the essence of the problem, that is simplified and you hope that you have made the right approximations and you know neglected what you think are external mm-hmm. extraneous things and that you've got at the essence of it right and then you solve it and then you try to understand it and then you say okay now let me go and reintroduce like one little bell and one little whistle and then see how that changes right so i see this is sort of what we do when we build models and in sort of the scientific work the sort of the sort of the theoretical work that i do and you know it's informed by data it's very much informed by data. What I do is of course, you know, these models are not, you know, sort of crazy out there models. They are models that are constrained by what we know already, right? But the goal is then to push these forward and to make predictions for something that is not known yet, not detected yet, but is likely to be detected, right? Mm-hmm. So I see this whole process is what I sort of, you know, also refer to as mapping. Okay. And as you said, you keep mapping, you keep moving the problem um, and, you know, add complexity. You pare it down. I mean, th- this is the thing that I sort of really relish about the kind of work that we all do. is the fact that, you know, you have these very complex problems that you need to solve with many interconnections, things feeding into each other, many things affecting each other. But then there is a way that mathematics and physics allows you to pare things down.
0: Well, so is this, uh, when you, you keep emphasizing that aspect of of your work or of the work that appeals to you and and is it a is that why abstract art is the kind of art that appeals to you the most
1: absolutely absolutely you got me absolutely
0: so because it's about the essence and the parts that are irrelevant or not what the artist wants to focus on are just gone it's minimalism we don't we don't need to see that other stuff
1: How how you extract the essence in art is much more free willing for us For us in maths and in physics, right, we have laws, right? I mean, which is just incredible. We have laws, we have axioms, we have theorems, and they sort of delimit a little bit, right? They circumscribe the kinds of extractions and paring down that we can do, like what is permitted.
0: When I talk to scientists, I I love to hear about the nitty-gritty. How do they actually work? What are their work habits? Helps me understand how they think. Do you sit behind a computer? Are you using pencil and paper? I suppose you're doing both, but...
1: Yeah, I do both. So I often start out with pencil and paper. I'm extremely visual. So I start out often sort of with, you know, like a cartoony. So I, I have sort of an intuition of how something might work physically. And so, and I think that really does come out of, you know, like a very sort of strong sense of being grounded in physics and foundations of physics and mathematics. And so I often come up with a diagram, like a little diagram. That's how I start Mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about a problem. So, you know, the problem that I've been working on for the last 10 years, which I'm really thrilled is like moving in a very good direction. And we've made some great predictions is of a brand new way to make the first black hole seats. The seeds
0: seeds of the black holes. Holes, uh, seeds Uh of
1: supermassive black holes.
0: Supermassive ones, yeah.
1: Yeah, supermassive ones. So, and then as I said, the standard way to make them would be from the end states of the first stars that form and the subsequent generations of stars that form. But it turns out those seeds are tiny. They're not massive enough to explain the detected presence of supermassive black holes already in place as quasars when the universe was a fraction of its age. So you see these very bright quasars very far away, and they're glowing, and from their luminosities, you can figure out how massive the black hole is likely to be. And they're already billions of times the mass of the sun when the universe was 15% of its current age. Mm. How is that possible? It's such an interesting
0: so, mystery. that You know, if you're going to make something that's a billion suns worth of mass but you matter don't have, yeah but or matter yeah but you don't have you haven't even made suns yet or you're just barely making them That's right that's a big profound mystery
1: yeah. So the, how do you scoop up the mass? Like, how do you scoop it up? How do you scoop up so much mass? So so we have this idea that we I developed with a postdoc of mine, uh, Giuseppe Laudato, um, you know, over about 15 years ago, we started on this sort of, you know, which started out as a speculative, you know, just a germ of an idea. And then you develop it. And as I said, you know, we started out with a pared down idea with basically a picture. So the idea was that, you know, the way to resolve this is obvious, right? Which is you need to somehow make a baby black hole to be much more massive from the get-go. Yeah. So you just need to make it like a thousand times, 10,000, 100,000 times the mass of the sun from the get-go. And how do you do that? You need certain sets of physical conditions um, in the universe. So you need to... uh, you know, have we know that in the universe the early before you form any stars you have hydrogen gas and that gas would settle down into some kind of disky structure. And if this this disk normally fragments and forms cools and forms stars. And that's how you form the stars. That's Uh the standard lore. But if somehow you could keep this pre galactic disc, keep it intact I and see. introduce a particular kind of instability, you know, the kind of vortex instability that would have, you know, bathtub. You pull out the plug in the bathtub, you can see the water sort of flowing down into that vortex. Sure. If somehow you're able to trigger that kind of instability in the gas very early on, then you can siphon, scoop up a lot of gas down the center to make a very massive black hole. So
0: let me try. A, so, let me try to d- give you a version of what I thought I just uh-huh. heard. If I had a big puddle of water, mm. yep. which is sort of being, going to be like your gas, I could splatter it into lots of little raindrops. Little yep. that would be like making stars, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's not going to work. Whereas if but I that, could,
1: well, that won't help for the black hole. It well, won't it help to make a
0: supermassive black hole. The and trick is hole. to right. somehow spin up that puddle, like as if it were all getting sucked down the drain. Make a little yep. tornado's worth, so it all got focused exactly. In,
1: Yeah, absolutely. You got it. Right. So so for this particular problem that I still have my notebook, so I still work with a fountain pen on notebooks. That's what I do. And I have a notebook from day one of when I started doing research. They're lined up in my office, so (laughs) I can go back and show you that, you know, I have this drawing of the vortex. So I got this idea because for some reason, I I don't know if I was watching a tornado, I was sitting in my bathtub or something, and then I thought, ah, that instability, if I could use that instability somehow, right? Because you need to deliver matter very rapidly to a very compact place in the center of an early galaxy. So that so you start starts out with diagramming like that and then sort of working out the physics of what you know what are the conditions that would give you that kind of vortex and that kind of flow and then, and then, sort of slowly realizing, okay, how long will it take to build up, you know, the kind of direct collapse black hole seed? That's what they're called now, um, and so on, right? And then you realize at that part, there's a there's a part of the problem that you reach where you basically now need a computer to look at the more general. So you can work out one specific scenario and say, okay, I can make it work in this instance, this circumstance, and thus the numbers work out. And then to sort of generalize it and to sort of put it in the larger context of what is known, you need a computer. So then I move to modeling on the computer, either with an actual simulation or a solving of a set of mathematical equations, right? You know, the stages are quite clear in my mm-hmm. head because I've been sort of, you know, marching along in this problem over the last decade. Wow. And so now, then the question, the big question, of course, is are those conditions that you know, under which this will happen, are they available in the early universe, right? So that's the basic question, right? This is great, I figured out the temperature, the density, everything you need to generate this, but then are they available? And then you need to go look at these cosmological simulations These very large, sort of, you know, simulations of um, the early universe from the initial conditions to now Uh with dark matter and all the known physics. So then we went and then we saw, ah, it turns out that yes, in some rare places in the universe, these conditions are available. So this is a feasible process, right? But is it too rare?
0: Would there be not enough supermassive? No,
1: it turns out that's the thing. It was not. They don't have to be too ubiquitous because these supermassive black holes that are a billion times the mass of the sun yeah. very early on, it's a tiny handful of them. Okay. Most of them so are that's garden working. variety.
0: That sounds like that's working. Totally working. Yeah. Whoa.
1: So and then we worked out over time when we could do better simulations, more accurate simulations um, of the early universe, we worked out that actually the statistics work out. Perfectly well. Oh, boy. Then the question is, what are all the physical conditions? So one key physical condition, as I was telling you, you've got to prevent the formation of stars. Yeah. Right? Right. And so, and the way stars form is because, you know, gas cools, so you need molecular, um, so everything is atomic hydrogen, and then you start forming molecules. And that means they're gonna cool the gas, the presence of molecules. So basically what you need is you need some process that would prevent the formation of hydrogen molecules. Mm -hmm. And we know one way to do it, easy way, is radiation. Mm. So basically, this then tells you that you need a location in the universe where you're forming stars already, so you have radiation. And then nearby, there is a region where this kind of swirling vortex Mm -hmm. can form and the radiation from the stars that are forming in the nearby dark matter halo early galaxy will suppress the cooling and allow this process to it's, it's
0: such a sherlock holmes process you're using i then. know like it is you're assembling sorry. all these different clues to the, it would right. have to be like this this and this right and it At,
1: yeah and then what you find is that a it's viable and not just that like the basic physics has also told you the very specific it's helping you hone in on the specific sets of conditions yeah. all the conditions that you need for this to be fulfilled and then the question is is this too restrictive right again the rarity uh, right oh well, right, my god right. can this happen often enough it turns out it can and mm. so so that hurdle so and you know and each of these things this whole idea um, you know it took about 10 years to wow. get to this point Because the simulations were not good enough, because the computers were not fast enough. Oh, boy. And so everything had to kind of, you know, everything has been kind of converging, right, as time. And then finally, a year ago, we reached the point where we could actually make a prediction of the spectrum of this object. And we were able to, this object, as it's assembling and it's growing, what would it look like? Uh And it turns out that it would emit, again, in very long wavelengths, like one to three to five microns in the very early universe, which is very dusty. And that's where you would see the signature. And guess what? The James Webb Space Telescope has the exact window where it should be able to see it. So I've put my neck out again.
0: It sounds like your neck is extremely stretched out. I mean, (laughs) first of all, so micron wavelength, you're saying? These yeah. are microwaves. One to, one
1: to five, one to, yeah, one to five microns, one to ten microns is where this spectral signature is quite unique for this class.
0: But of what, what would those? What's? I just don't remember my EM, uh, my electromagnetic spectrum. What would those waves be called at that wavelength?
1: They're just microwaves, right? They're microwaves. So okay, they yeah, I thought so, so. Yeah. Microns. So, yeah. So, so. And so these are infrared, sort of mid, far, near infrared radiation. But you're
0: saying it will have not just it's that it's going to have a, a lot of power in that set of wavelengths, yeah. most but it'll have a particular, power, yeah. so
1: have a particular spectral pattern, signature, like, right. a finger, a spectral,
0: spectral like a signature fingerprint.
1: That's right, a very clear spectral signature from the hydrogen, yeah. a total fingerprint, a unique fingerprint. And unlike normal garden variety quasar, slightly later on in the universe, right, which is a slightly more assembled, mature black hole later yeah. on in the universe, where we talked about earlier, much of the output would come in the X-ray. For these very early chaps, much—the X-ray is suppressed, and it all comes out in the infrared, because did the you, universe is very dusty. Did you just call them chaps? Yes, I call them chaps. These yeah. very <laughs>
0: early chaps? Chaps, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I also anthropomorphize the objects I love it. that I'm
0: studying. Man, yeah. I gotta. I want to draw a picture of these things. We got these chaps that are feasting, they're <laughs> belching. There's like some kind of Shakespearean <laughs> character. <laughs> okay, sorry. Perhaps—
1: Perhaps this anthropomorphizing is not something I quite wanted to reveal. But we anyway. should no,
0: come on. This <laughs> is how the playful spirit of science. Is how the great scientists right. do their thing. You're you're showing how it's really done. This is this is the thrill of doing science. You you have a guess about how the universe is going to behave, and we're not just making stuff up. I mean, this is a really right. important process, if it exists, and it may not. But That's I mean, right, right now it's. It's like we're waiting for the end of this movie, and we don't know how yeah, this right. is going to turn out. Yeah, we and don't know it how it turn out. It might yeah. be right, it might not be right, but it's a beautiful idea that came yeah. from this, um, you know, kind of like very down-to-earth thing, thinking about the vor- the bathtub vortex, and but then with a lot of detailed calculations, <laughs> right. 10 years of tenacity. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, no, but also, I mean, I have to tell you that, you know, when I started it, everyone, you know, it was obviously peer-reviewed, published, everything, right? And people thought, hmm. Oh, another of Priya's very um, original, inventive, but speculative ideas, right? And hmm, it's kind of speculative. You know, the speculation is also a loaded word. Like, you know, there are people who are like, you know, are, do crazy speculation. I don't do crazy speculation. No, no, It's a very calculated speculation. You're very
0: constrained. You're paying attention uh, yeah, to all contra- the... Yeah,
1: the, yeah. But yes, I mean, I think I'm known as someone who whose papers will have something, some kind of new kind of thing that pushes stuff. huh you know, I'm not particularly religious, but I was born Hindu, but, and, but I have read the scriptures, I know Sanskrit, and I've read a lot of Indian philosophy, enough to understand the things that I like about it and what I can take and so on. And I think this, you know, the idea, uh, there's a very strong theme um, in Indian philosophical thought about how you just perform the actions and you don't get invested in the results. Uh-huh. Right? The outcome is not in your hands. And that's not what you need to examine the motivations for why you are doing what you're doing. And it's a very famous quote from the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, you don't realize it. And I probably would not have admitted to this about maybe even 15 years ago. But now that I look back and I think, and I say, you know what, that is sort of what has really guided me. That's sort of, um, that's what has allowed me To develop the kinds of attitudes that I have that have served me well, right? And that continue to serve me well. Um, Try and not be obsessed with kind of outcomes and the sort of even this sort of validation of theories and predictions and you know all of that, right? To not be trapped by that, to not be defined just by that. And that's why, in a way, I talked a lot more about the process uh, today when talking mm-hmm. to you, more yes. than kind of listing to you all the discoveries and all the major breakthroughs that have come out of my work. Blah blah blah, <laughs> right? No, and, the and process
0: think, is what's so interesting, and yeah. we can all relate to that. And of course, there's so much luck in the outcomes, and oh, and as enormous, you say, it can be a trap. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, all, um, and I think we can all relate to that, whatever our, whether we're in mm. business or any creative field or mm. anything. You have to think about your process mm. um, do, and being, you know, being mm. honest, being true to yourself and your art, love your art. And, yeah, you may get lucky and get noticed or not, but at least you have right. integrity. But also I, I once had a mentor who said, you know, if you really want something remarkable to have a chance of happening, you have to study something or work on something that grips you irrationally by yes. the imagination. That's the way he put it to That's me. That's so beautiful. <clears throat> Isn't that a cool phrase? He says, art was Art yeah. Winfrey. He said it yeah. has to grip you irrationally by the imagination. Yes. And what I like about that, I mean, I guess you get it when you say it's beautiful. The irrational part is the key. Yes, that exactly. You can't, you can't even explain why you love the problem. Right. You just love it so much right. that you think about it when you take a bath and, yeah. you know, when you're driving or whatever. It's just you're in love with it. And maybe something remarkable will happen. That's what it, it- takes.
1: Right, and it's a certain kind of being consumed by it. Yes. Right. That. Yeah. And it's a well, suspension of. Um,
0: I mean, your ten-year voyage with this bathtub vortex that may have created <laughs> the black holes, the supermassive ones, and given structure to the universe. You know, I mean, clearly you're consumed. To ten years on it, and it's yeah. not done yet, and we don't oh, even know not if it's going to be right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Next time on the Joy of X. Alex Kontorovich will tell us what it was like to work with the Michael Jordan of mathematics. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta Magazine, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet, and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom Reed, though I know him as Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz, thanks for listening.